0: Man, there we go. That was my fault, by the way. I flipped the wrong way. How are you guys doing this morning? So I was sitting on the front row, looking at Risa, and having flashbacks to my jun- junior high years in the you know early '90s with her outfit and her like baggy jeans. I was like, it's it's just blows my mind uh, the fashions these days because it just like takes me back to listening to to Nirvana and you know, watching Friends on TV. And and so hopefully you relate to that when you see Rice up here or uh, some of the styles today. You know, I've really enjoyed this series of Church Is. It's been challenging. It's been enlightening. It's been uplifting. um, And I hope that you've experienced that too. And I just want to give a shout out to Pastor Lucy, who did a phenomenal job last week. Can we give her a round of applause? You know, one—it's not—it's not easy to run a kids ministry and then be in here and preach at the same time. That takes incredible leadership on her part, but even more so to step into a space and last week and talk about the enduring church and how God prunes His church and really um, stand up here and apologize for maybe some of the hurt and the brokenness you've experienced through church leadership, through the organizational church, through the body of Christ. It takes a lot of humility. Um, and knowing her story and the journey that she's been on and some of the hurt she's experienced, it takes a lot of vulnerability to, to share that way. And so um, I thought that was a phenomenal message. Um, on, and so if you didn't hear it and you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go online and check that out. We're gonna be in Psalms 133 this morning. That's gonna be kind of our our pillar verse, our vision statement. What I encourage you to do, and I'll do this every time I preach, is to bring your word word to church. Um, I love the phone. Um, The phone has many purposes uh, in my life, but in church, I think it's more often than not a distraction. And so I just encourage you to bring your word. And if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible. There's some on each side of the stage here. You can grab those on your way out. Also, grab a pen that's in front of you. Write down on the back of the giving envelope. If you didn't bring a journal, you know, write some notes down. You know why you do that? Is one to stay present in the room. If you're like me, it takes about five seconds, and you're already distracted, and you're already thinking about what you want for lunch. So, hey, do these things, and it'll help uh, you be more receptive to what God wants to speak to you this morning. Um, we're going to start in one Psalms one thirty three, but we're all, honestly today we're going to be over a lot of biblical text and a lot of quotes because I really want to cast a vision of the, the- theological precedence of some of the things that God believes about His church. So, starting though in Psalms one thirty three says, "How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity." How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. So the title of today's sermon is the church is beautiful and dot, dot, dot. You know, it's so funny. You can't just say the church is beautiful. It's kind of like in marriage. You can say, man, marriage is amazing and it's hard, <laughs> right? That's kind of how like, everyone describes it. Marriage is amazing and it's complex, and that's kind of how it is when describing the church is so beautiful and it can be ugly. The church is beautiful and it's messy. The church is beautiful and it's hard. The church is beautiful and it's broken. It really takes a lot to, it, you, you can't just say that it's beautiful because it is this complex and messy and mysterious thing that Christ is building in and through us. And it's my desire this morning. To look, though, at the good and beautiful of the church and to explore some of the wonderful benefits it holds for the believer and, I think, for the world. My prayer as I was coming up this morning is is that, God, that you would restore in us a hope and a belief in the church and its values for our lives and our world. Amen? Amen. All right, when I say amen, that's where you go, amen. All right, there we go. Uh, Sorry, I grew up in a charismatic church, so I need a little bit of self-love back. Plus, I'm really insecure. Um, So a couple statistics. Um, Barna did a study from 1993 to 2020. um, And from 1993 to 2020, um, 36% um, less uh, professing Christians attend regularly a church, 36% Um, professing Christians attend regularly a church. And their understanding of attending regularly or being involved in a church means attending only once a month on a regular basis. And I can only imagine that in the last two years that that statistic has gone up 10, maybe even 15%. And among Christians today, um, the narrative questioning and criticizing and rejecting the church is very common. Um, and seemingly even wandering away from the church is viewed as the new road to spiritual maturity. Have you experienced this? People of all generations are struggling to look at the church and its lackluster appearance and its glaring fault flaws. And if we're honest, life in the local church sometimes seems ordinary and redundant. They're struggling to look at the church and have a love and a desire and a value for it. The glaring public failures of the church and its leaders have made it hard to see the beauty of the church. And out of our own personal hurt, we've grown ever more cynical and jaded. You know, I'm a, a critical person. I, I, I'm an Enneagram one. And, and I think one of the gifts I bring to an organization or to life is just having that eye um, uh, to see problems and to bring healthy and life-giving critique. Um, And there are things in in my 18 years in ministry that, to be completely honest, have deeply bothered me about the church and about the leadership of the church and some of the things that have been done and said in the name of Christ. And and I've I've been critical at times of that. And, and And I think that there's a healthy version of that. And a needed version within the church. A healthy honesty where we evaluate ourselves. However, if we're not careful, I know, I know in myself that that can slip into a spirit, a, a critical spirit. A cynicism towards church, a jadedness. And I think in this life it's so easy to get jaded towards stuff, right? Right? Like I see it in marriage all the time that people that go through marriage and experience hurt and harm or brokenness or disappointment, you know, maybe they had these high expectations of what marriage was going to be like and they weren't going to be lonely anymore and this person was going to love them completely and then they got into marriage and realized that it's a lot more complicated than that, right? So they got into marriage and, and it was disappointing, And their spouse disappointed them or they experienced hurt or they experienced pain in that time. And so what do they become? They become jaded towards marriage. And I see the same thing happen in church that that we experience legitimate pain. We experience legitimate disappointment. We experience legitimate heartache or hurt. And we become jaded toward the church. But I think most of us today would agree that even though we've experienced that in maybe marriage, that we wouldn't throw marriage out. We wouldn't say that it's not a good and beautiful thing, right? So why do we do the same thing with church? Why is it that when we experience disappointment or hurt that we, we just want to cast a, an overall vision of it that it's, that it's not a good thing? And so it's so easy to look at the glaring flaws of the national church and the global church and to grow cynical and to grow jaded. And I know that I've had to deal with that in my heart at times. So what do we do? What do we do when the local church appears maybe unremarkable, flawed? How do we delight in belonging, in the ecclesia, the the called out ones, the people of God, the family of God. And I think an even more pressing question today is how do we pass on a love for the church to the generation that will follow us? Because to be honest, I don't know if it is being. See at first glance the house of God is unremarkable. It's a regular gathering of ordinary people committed to largely an invisible and unmeasurable mission. We are plain and ordinary, and some of you are extremely good-looking. The rest of us are very average, um, (laughs) including myself in that. Some of us are incredibly gifted, and some of us are not, (laughs) We sing slightly off-key, and we can't always clearly articulate the faith we even profess. Anyone, if they spend any time in the church, will see the diversity of opinions and personalities, political views, and parenting styles that often cause contention. And that, that even our most mature believers at times get caught up in petty quarrels and gossiping and living apathetically in the faith. And yet I would strongly encourage us today that the church has more beauty and more value than we can see. There is more here than meets the eye. There's more in the church than meets the eye, and I love that saying. I don't know why. I don't use it a lot, but more than more than meets the eye, um, and it takes me back to kind of high school and college years, or actually when I first moved to Denver, because people would say, "Hey, where are you from?" I'd say, "Oh, I'm from West Texas, and just moved to Colorado," and they're like, "Oh, I'm sorry." You know, and, and, and I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> so you got an opinion about West Texas. Most of you are like, I don't even know what West Texas is. Um, and, 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 and the reason they would say that is because if you've ever been through West Texas, um, it's not known as the most beautiful place on the earth. Um, and, and so, you know, it's, it's a little flat. Okay, it's a lot flat. Um, there's no water. Um, it, there are some trees, but they've been planted by the people that live there, and they're, they're about my height. Um, and uh, the wind blows rather strong at times, and it doesn't just blow. um, You can see the wind blowing. You can see the air because it picks up mass amounts of dust, um, which you get to inhale while you're there. And so I know that I just completely sold Lubbock, Texas to you guys, and some of you are already Googling for the next flight to go visit there. Um, But that's why most people, when I say I'm from West Texas, they'll say, oh, I'm sorry, (laughs) you must be glad you're in Colorado now. (laughs) Um, And I am, I've been here 13 years and absolutely love it. Um, But I I, I normally would follow that um, with, yeah, you know, there's more there than meets the eye. And what did I mean by that? It's like, hey, yeah, if you just look at Lubbock, Texas, you're probably not going to book a vacation there. You're probably not going to go, man, I I would love to live there. It's so beautiful. It's so miraculous. But when you live there, what you'll be surprised is in spite of its absolute ordinariness, there are some miraculous beauties there. I've traveled all over the world, and, and I've lived in Hawaii, and I've lived in Asia, and you know what? I've never seen a sunset more um, beautiful than that in West Texas because there's nothing blocking the horizon, and so when the sun hits it, it lights up the sky, or right. when a thunderstorm is coming across the plains, and, it, and it's larger than any mountain you've ever seen, and it's Wrapped in purples and reds and orange and you can see the lightning hitting the ground and you can see the the strips of rain falling. It's majestic. Or in the fall when the the cotton crops begin to turn white and you look across for miles on end and it's solid white. So even in its ordinariness, there's extraordinary beauty there underneath the surface. There's more there than meets the eye. And I think the same to be true about the church. That if we looked at it on the, the base level, we might go, oh, it's not extraordinary. It's incredibly ordinary. It's maybe even a little routine and boring at times. But there's more there than meets the eye. The Bible proclaims that the church, listen to these words, that the church is a radiant bride. A spiritual house made with living stones, a pillar of truth, the very body of Christ himself. What profound and strong words the word uses to describe the ecclesia, the church. A couple of years ago, I was reading in a book and it said, that Christian community is one of the most overpromised and undelivered promises in the church. And I remember as a 20-something, I was extra cynical back then. You know, something about being in your 20s, you're just a little bit more cynical than you are in your 30s. Maybe it's a little bit more life that beats you down. Sorry if you're in your 20s. Uh, you'll grow out of it, um, hopefully. Otherwise, no one will be able to put up with you in your 30s. Um, so I was a little extra cynical, and I remember highlighting that in the book, putting big stars. Yeah, that's so true. You know, it's just so over-promised and under-delivered. And, and, you know, I've experienced that where, you know, pastors, they told me they, that, you know, the church is so caring and loving. And when you're in the body of Christ, you're never going to be alone, and you're going to experience the love of Christ. And, blah, and, and, and all of that is true, right? And, but then I'm like, yeah, but when I got into community, it was nothing like that. People were selfish and self-seeking and, man, they never cared about my interests, let alone did I care about theirs. But, oh, well, you know, and, 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 and I just, I remember being like, oh, man, that's so true. Did anyone else do that? Anyone in that stage You're like, oh, that's so true. Um, and I think there is some truth to that. But I also think there's some big misconceptions. See, the thing is the church is and will always be on this side of heaven, a gathering of the broken, a gathering of the sinner, a gathering of the undone, the unhealthy, and the becoming. And so, if we are surprised when we enter into the church by the the, the inadequacy of its individuals, then we have a wrong view of what the church is. And thank God that it is that because it wouldn't be a place for me if it wasn't and it wouldn't be a place for you if it wasn't. And so first off, yes, the church will always be oversold and underdelivered in experience, but that doesn't take away from its beauty and its worth and its value in our lives. And I've also seen how so many of us are living isolated and disconnected lives, and we're settling for shallow connections that demand very little of us because of our busyness, because of of our desire to have it all. We live in these shallow uh, relationships that demand very little of us, but in return offer very little to us. I've also seen how we've replaced Christ at the center of the church in our gathering, and I've done this also. And we've made it around style, expression, experience, political views, a personality, maybe social connection, or one's own personal benefit. I think of G.K. Chesterton's words when he said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. Rather, it has been found difficult and thus left untried. And I think Christianity currently are suffering from a rather low view of the visible church. A low, um, what they would call low ecclesiology. And this is what that is. To have a low cleology, ecclesiology means to not hold, to the, hold the value of the, not, means to not hold the visible church. Let me say that again. To have a low ecclesiology means to not hold a very high value of the visible church. The gathering of the saints, corporate worship, the ordinary means of grace, membership and ordination, church disciplines and the like as being not that important in one's life. In contrast, to have a high ecclesiology would be to value the importance and to esteem the work of the visible church. The great theologian um, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, our greatest need is to recapture the New Testament teaching concerning the church. If only we could see ourselves in terms of it we would realize that we are the most privileged people on earth. That there is nothing to be compared with being a Christian and a member of the mystical body of Christ. So what is that high ecclesiology, that high view of the church that the New Testament holds? And I just want us to do a jaunt through the scriptures. I want us to look at some of Paul's words. And I could literally probably have 20 scriptures to read this morning. We're going to look at three, okay? And as I read these, I hope that you will just be impressed by the language of affection and and delight that the writer has for the church, okay? Okay. So just take in, as I read these words, and notice how Paul specifically speaks about the church. So starting in 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says, Don't you know that you yourself are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Colossians 3.12. Therefore, as God's chosen pee-pee, people, hope not pee <laughs> That's what happens when you drink three cups of coffee. Um, therefore, all right, get serious, guys. This is church. Therefore, as God's... (laughs) I can't even get serious. Uh, My kids would love that if they were in the service. They'd be... Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Listen to that. Holy and dearly loved. Clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Why should we clothe ourselves in these things? Because... We are dearly loved. We are dearly loved. And then listen to the care in which Paul talks about the church. Jesus, as a nurse, or just as a nursing mother, cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. And you might read those words and think, oh, well, Paul, he's got a little of that new car smell problem, right? You know, the church is brand new, it's just getting started. He really hasn't experienced the 2,000 years of horribleness that has come through the church at times. He hasn't experienced the pain and the sorrow that I have. You know, he's all sunshine and hymns, you know. He's like, he's like filling the church. It's feeling new. It's feeling exciting. It still does, it still smells good. It doesn't have that, you know, that nasty smell after having five kids that live in it for a while. You know, he's like loving the church. Of course he has that perspective. Really? Well, let's just take a quick look at what Paul experienced through the church. First, He was regularly viewed with skepticism by the church leaders. He suffered personal attacks from false teachers and their disciples. He was intentionally misunderstood constantly by other Christians. He regularly, and I mean regularly, had disagreements with other Christians and Christian leaders. He experienced rampant hypocrisy. And sexual sin in the church. I don't know about you, but when's the last time that you had to deal with a son-in-law sleeping with his mother-in-law? Hopefully not you know, not recently. Well, Paul had to deal with stuff like that. He had to deal with this sin in the church. He had to deal with hypocrisy in, in some of the teachings that they had. And then he sat alone in prison longing for committed fellow workers but realizing in his words that they all seek their own interest and not those of Jesus Christ. And the last, and in what may be the saddest verse in all of the epistles, he recounts, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. See, if anyone knew how imperfect and how disappointing the local church could be, it was the apostle Paul. And yet, listen to these words. He held constantly held the church in the highest regard, calling the church over twelve times beloved, regularly referring to other Christians as his dearly loved family, and often addressing them as saints. He cherished their presence seven times in the epistle. Seven times Paul expresses his longing to be face-to-face with the church, churches he loved. And he was constantly and regularly in almost every letter encouraging the church to, to not take advantage of the fact that they get to be together. But to be faithful in dwelling with one another. And he loved them not only in word but in action. On behalf of the church he worked tirelessly. He prayed night and day and was even willing to be poured out as a drink offering upon the uh, sacrificial offering of their faith. And last, in nearly every letter, he starts out by giving thanks to God for that congregation in which he is writing. We see in Paul that even though he experienced the hardship, the disappointment, even the hurt of the church, that it did not take away from his high um, view of the people of God, of the ecclesia of the church. And you might think, oh, well, of course, he, you know, he's, he's the writer of the New Testament. He's going to hold this. But we see this throughout history of the church in the early church fathers, of, of, even though they experienced the church brokenness, of holding to this high ecclesiology. And one of those early church um, uh, leaders of the faith is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I just wanted to give you a glimpse of his view of the church. And the quote will be on the screen. It says, The physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. How inexhaustible are the riches that open up for those who by God's will are privileged to live in the daily fellowship of life with other Christians. Listen to these words. Therefore, Let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart and let him thank God on his knees and declare it is grace and nothing but grace that we are allowed to live in community with the Christian brethren. Wow, what words. And you may think, oh, once again, well, yeah, he hasn't experienced the hurt. He hasn't seen the hypocrisy that I've seen. But let me tell you a little bit about Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor in Germany at the rise of the Nazi party. And he tells a story, and I can't remember what book, book it's in, but of one of his uh, fellow parishes, one of his fellow pastors in the area, had a church that sat next to uh, the railroad tracks. And on Sunday mornings, the, 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 the train would go by carrying men and women to the concentration camps. And the church would play their music loudly in worship to distract themselves from what was happening right outside their door. They were turning a blind eye to maybe the world's uh, most grievous injustice that has ever happened. See, Dietrich Bonhoeffer eventually would be imprisoned for standing up against what the Nazi party was doing, and he would die there in prison. And this is a man that knew the hypocrisy of the church. This is a man that knew the brokenness of the church, and yet he says how, uh, how great and incomparable are the joys for those that get to dwell together in unity. He had in his heart that, that passage from Psalms 133. So how do we delight what is the good and beautiful church and community? I've been dwelling on this passage in Philippians chapter 2, and it says this, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded and having the same love and being one in spirit and one in mind. And as I was thinking about that passage, I kind of felt the charge of Paul to go, man, do I have any X? Do I have any Y? And what would that be? And as I think back over the years of Sundays in church, see, I grew up in church since I was a baby. Uh, my, my, pa- my parents uh, sang on the worship team. So I was there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and then at worship rehearsals. And so I literally slept in the back row of they used to be not this comfortable, right? They used to be like wooden pews. Um, and I slept in the church. And, and, and through those years, I've seen the brokenness and hardships of the church. I've seen the hurtfulness. There's been times that I've questioned, is it worth it? But as I think back over these years of Sunday in church, I can truly say I can see the significant, significance of these experiences. If I have any maturity in the faith... Any authentic relationship, any resolve to follow Jesus, it is due in large part to the ordinary and the broken and unextraordinary local church. And I can say that with my whole heart. So I just want to talk about a few ways I've experienced the beauty of the church. One, I have experienced through the church Christ's love. Sure, there's been times where I've experienced the opposite, but I can tell you more often than not, I've seen God's love um, on display through you guys. There have been times, I remember, when I lost my brother about a year and a half ago, and I was grieving, and I was processing this, and I found out in the middle of the night, and before I could even call my friends the next morning, they were there to take my kids so that I could grieve, and that I could experience and and, and, and be with my wife. I've seen countless times the church be selfless and go out of their way and love others. I've seen Christ's love expressed through the church. One of the most loving people I know, she's not here today, so she'd be completely embarrassed that I'm highlighting her, is, is Pastor Shanna. That girl loves people. If, if you have received a letter of encouragement from pastor shanna raise your hand all right look around like this is just one service all right pastor shanna is amazing at this and let me tell you a story about pastor shanna um a couple months ago um i asked her how our weekend was she's like oh it's really good we went over to this nursing home and i'm like oh you know like what were you doing there and And it was the nursing home that we had visited a couple months back as a do-good day, as part of her job. Um, But on her own, she saw how much uh, the individuals that were living there would just come alive at the sight of their baby Carter. And so they just decided that on one of their Saturdays, not a part of her work, they were going to go up there and just spend time with these residents. She had no family there. She had no acquaintance there. But yet she just said, hey, this is my Saturday. This is what I want to do. I want to go love on these individuals. See, I've seen, and it may not always be on the surface, but I have seen the love of Jesus represented through you guys so many times in beautiful and extraordinary and in completely ordinary ways. I've also seen Christ dwell in his church. Christ's presence dwell in his church. And the older I get, the more when I'm sitting with you and I'm sitting across from you, I can sense God's presence in the middle of us. And I've been shocked in my own life as as pastors have moved on and they've said, hey Daniel, you know, I've experienced this through you and God really worked through your life in this way. And I'm sitting there dumbfounded going, what? Do you know who I am? Do you know the struggles I have? Do you know how inadequate I am at times? And yet, they experience Christ in me, and through the church I have seen God transform lives. Not everyone. It's not a guarantee that if you're in the church, you're gonna be transformed, but if you truly engage it, I have seen um, people's marriages changed. I've seen people set free from addiction. I've seen old men that were grumpy and horrible to uh, be around become a little bit softer and a little bit kinder and a little bit more gentle and a little bit more Christ. I've seen God change me from a person that had issues with anger brokenness and addiction and I've seen him make me kinder and I've seen him make me more patient and I've seen him make me more loving maybe not to the expression that I fully want but it's coming through the church through the encouragement and the challenge and the calling out at times but also the speaking over me who I am in Christ so as we close how do we move on I believe that God wants us to delight in his church, to have a high view, to be able to hold um, the, 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 the tension between that the church is beautiful and it's messy, the church is beautiful and it's broken, the church is beautiful and it's mysterious, the church is beautiful and it's blessed. So how do we do that? How do we walk into that space? How do we um, begin to delight anew and afresh in the church? And these last points, I just, I, I, I just tell you straight up, I'm pulling them straight from Dietrich Bonhoeffer <laughs> because the guy was brilliant and he's, a, he's, he's impacted my life. But the first thing we have to do is we have to shift our posture towards the church. Diedrich said this, Christian brotherhood is not an ideal to be realized. It's rather reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others and by himself. He enters the community of Christianity with demands. He sets up his own law and judges the brethren and God himself um, accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if he is the dream that binds men together. What things do not go his way. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. So, he becomes first the accuser of the brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally, the despairing accuser of himself. Last week, Lucy stood up here and said, Man, I'm sorry and I repent for the ways that we have hurt you, for the th- ways that we have represented Christ inaccurately. But I think today there's also a space for repenting to say, God, I am sorry for the ways that I have accused your church, that I have placed myself in the seat of the, the, the judge that I have held the church to my standard rather than your standard. For Christ so loved the church that he gave his life, not when she was beautiful, but when she was broken. He loved her. He celebrated her. He called her the radiant bride of Christ, even when she was lost and a sinner. So God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for being cynical and jaded towards your church. And I'm sorry for downgrading something that you love so much that you would give your life for it. Your radiant bride, Jesus. I'm sorry for the times I've spoken poorly of her. And Lord, I pray that you would give us your vision of the church, your love for the church, because God, we can't do it on our own. We need your love, amen. So to delight delight in the community, we have to lay down our own wishful ideas and our expectations and demands. And we must learn to change our perspective and our posture and to receive the community of God as a gift. It's not an ideal to be realized. It is a reality that we have the privilege of entering into. You have the privilege. You are a part of the community of God. And then secondly, we need to shift our perspective and choose to look below the surface and judge and not judge on initial appearances. I think we often miss out on the big things that God has in store for us because cannot see and give thanks for the ordinary daily gifts he has for us. Diedrich said this if we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, even when we're there it's it's no great experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith and difficulty. If on the contrary we only keep complaining to God that everything is so paltry and petty, so far from what we expected, then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and the riches which we are there for us in Christ Jesus. You know, I spent, I've, spent eight, I've spent my whole life in church and I can't tell you how much I've been robbed of the blessings and the gift of church because I'm so focused on what's wrong. Have you ever done that in marriage? Like you focus so on so much wrong with your marriage that you cannot even experience the good. You cannot even see the good in your spouse or in yourself because you're so focused on what is, is not right, what is not mature. The same was with the body of Christ. We've got to come not with a heart of always just cynicism, but with a heart of gratefulness and thankfulness. And then last, we have to choose to take part. We have to choose to take part. I know that some of you have been hurt. I know that some of you have been disappointed. I've been disappointed. There's been times where I've wondered, is this worth my life? And out of that place, it's easy to kind of step back and keep our distance, to continue to kind of have one foot in and one foot out, to, to, to not fully engage and, and commit our lives to Christ and to the, the gathering of believers. And so many of you, So many of you are living as orphans in the body of Christ, even though you have a family that wants to encourage you, that wants to celebrate you, that wants to come alongside of you, and yet you continue to live as desperados of the faith. And I think the invitation from Jesus this morning is step in, put your reservations aside and take a risk and take a chance and engage anew with the body of Christ, and be open to what God might do through them in this season for you. Amen? Will you stand up? I'm going to pray over you as we go. We can talk about the church and these vague, big ideas. The church is, but guys, you are the church. And as you leave, know this, Christ loves you individually and collectively. We sang earlier, oh, how he loves us. And I think in our culture, we talk about how he loves me a lot. But if you read the New Testament, majority... 90-something percent of all the passages that talk about Christ's love, it's not that Christ loves you, because he does, but that's not how he says it. It's that Christ loves us, that he gave his life for us, that he laid down his life for the church. Christ loves you, but if you look around, he loves the people around you, and he loves you collectively together. So let us love the church as Christ loves the church. Let us choose, in spite of its ordinariness, in spite of its disappointments at times, choose to believe in the church as Christ believes in the church, amen? Let me pray over you. Lord Jesus, we just celebrate that you love us, even though we're not always lovely. But in spite of that, God, you don't love us because we're lovely, God. You love us, and then we become the lovely uh, bride of Christ. And so, Lord, today, I ask that you would help people believe and, and, and desire and hope in and, and, and what the church is and what the church can be, Jesus. I pray that you would meet them in their pain and their frustration and their discouragement. And that, Lord, that you would place in them your vision of what the church is and who the church is. And Lord, we, we give you all the glory for this and we know that we are being built up to be your body, your dwelling place, so dwell in us. May your love and your presence be rich in this church. In your name we pray, and together we said amen and amen.